Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Thanks so very much for tuning into my show, America Can We Talk? Today we're going to talk about Supreme Court upholding a case involving a cross on public land, criminalizing cowardice. The Florida school shooting case goes to criminal court, Biden bonding with racists, Congress starting reparations hearing, and if we have time to get to it, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez versus the Holocaust. And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, a Dallas-based company performing advanced technology research in the oil and gas industry. And hello again, and again, welcome to America Can We Talk. On today's First Five, I'm going to give you a quick summary of a Supreme Court decision that was issued yesterday. And it's a really good decision. It involves the freedom of religion, and in particular, First Amendment. I'll just tell you very briefly, the religion clauses in the First Amendment say, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. This case involves a cross, a very large physical cross on public land in the state of Maryland. A quick history was it didn't used to be public land. It used to be a private cemetery put together back in 1919 by women, by moms in the area who had lost children in World War I, lost their sons, and this was a memorial. Years later, the Maryland, uh, state of Maryland moved a road and this cross ended up being in the middle of the road. So it is on public land, but didn't start out that way. The question before the Supreme Court was, does the existence of this truly large cross, physical cross, constitute a violation of the First Amendment? In particular, does it constitute an establishment of religion by the state of Maryland for permitting the cross to stand there? So. The case, the Supreme Court ruled yesterday 7-2, ruled in favor of the cross being able to remain. So it ruled it was not a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment, which is a good thing. I think a lot of people were hoping the court would say something like, any religious symbol anywhere in public land is fine. That a symbol of religion standing on public property does not by itself constitute a violation of the Establishment Clause. But the, the court was more careful than that, and I think actually wisely. The 7-2 decision, Justice Alito wrote this, the uh, majority opinion, and naturally it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sonia Sotomayor who dissented. But the point that the Supreme Court made in this case was the mere fact that this obviously Christian symbol, a cross, on public land did not violate the First Amendment was because the court was able to take into consideration the longevity of its presence on the land in question and the multiple messages that are sent by that symbol. And for many people, crosses symbolize uh, not just the Christian faith, which of course for Christians it does, but they, they're a lot about American history, about our, you know, you think about the American soldiers who gave their lives. We talked about D-Day a few weeks ago, gave their lives on D-Day, the just field of crosses that are in France. People picture those. They are symbols of American soldiers uh, who gave their lives. What would have been interesting is that the Supreme Court said there cannot be any representation of a religion, any religious symbol on any public land 
what would they do when down the road from this, they call this the Peace Cross in Maryland, but down the road, just a few miles away in Virginia is Arlington National Cemetery. If you've been there, you see that cemetery is a sea, an ocean of crosses. There, you know, the, the large crosses that are part of the displays, the big displays at Arlington, plus the individual crosses that are the, uh, the, the grave markers for people who are buried there. But the real point and why I want to talk about this case in the first five today is this. There is an antagonism in America on the part of people who are atheists, people who are agnostic, uh, people who are very left wing in their thinking that want to drive religion out of public life in America. They want to make the argument that religion has no place, no symbolism, no, no connection to America. So they, they assert that essentially having a cross on this public land constituted a, a violation, the separation of church and state. Again, as we talked about in the show before, there is no constitutional standard that says that there is a separation of church and state. That's not in the Constitution. It is a phrase from a letter written later, at long after the Constitution was passed, but was written and adopted. But the Constitution does not require a flat-out uh, separation of church and state. It involves the, the weighing, the considerations as the court did in this case. So it was a good decision. The uh, cross at the, the peace cross in Maryland can remain, but the larger message I think will be good for America that you will see, I hope America take away from it is there is no absolute right for anti-Christian groups, anti-religious groups in this country to file lawsuits to force the American people to take away all religious symbols off of public land. There is no right of individuals in this country to claim that they have a right to never have to look at a symbol of another religion. Their First Amendment rights, driving down a public road in Maryland and, and driving by this cross, does not, the fact they have to look at a Christian symbol that happens to sit in public land, that is not a violation of the Constitution. It was a bit of a message from the court saying, you know what, chill out atheists and agnostics who are just extremely aggressive, confrontational about the idea of religious symbols in America. We're not going to outlaw or eliminate Christian symbols, religious symbols on public land or in public in America. Great decision by the Supreme Court. And that, my friends, is today's first five. I want to turn next. I mentioned, uh, in fact, I raced through the introduction. We have a guest joining us today. I believe we have him online, Giancarlo Canaparo. He is with the Heritage Foundation, uh, one of my favorite think tanks based in Washington, D.C. He's a lawyer there. He's a legal fellow in the Heritage uh, Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Uh, he joined Heritage just this year. He served as a law clerk prior to this in the federal district court, served with one of the prominent uh, law firms in Washington. But the best part is he went to Georgetown, which is my law school, so probably he's really smart. Anyway, I believe we have Giancarlo online. Hello, sir. Debbie, how are you? Very well. I'm glad to have you. Thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Always nice to be online with uh, another Georgetown grad. That's right. Okay. Well, what I want to get at is this. This is a, such an interesting case. I tell you, I brought this up with one of our adult kids uh, yesterday just to ask him what he thought about it. But here's a quick summary of what we're going to talk about today. So you all remember the horrific school shooting in, on Valentine's Day in 2018 in the state of Florida, the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in which a shooter got inside the school, most unfortunately a 19-year-old kid. Uh, he, he ended up killing 17 people and the 
litigation now that we're going to talk about, or the prosecution we're going to talk about, involves a man who was actually the school safety officer. He was an employee. He was a, a safety officer armed outside the school, and this man named Scott Peterson, for whatever reasons we can all conjure up, Scott Peterson chose to stay outside the school. He heard the gunfire. He didn't go in. He did not try to rescue these kids. He did not uh, try to, to get the shooter. And uh, in fact, when other officers arrived, police officers arrived, he told them all to stay 500 feet back. He is now being prosecuted. This guy, Scott Peterson, this guy being prosecuted for one count of perjury, seven counts of child neglect, and three counts of culpable negligence for not going into the school. So my friend Giancarlo, I want to ask you, you wrote a piece about it, and I think Heritage is looking at this issue. What is wrong with the idea of a criminal prosecution of Scott Peterson on these facts? So the interesting thing, Debbie, is this case is really unique in that um, Scott Peterson is being prosecuted not for doing something bad, but for not doing something good. And that's a, a pretty far cry from the traditional role of the criminal law in our constitutional system. Uh, traditionally, we've used the criminal law to punish only the worst of the worst. That is, bad acts done with evil intent. And there's two reasons for that. The, the one is a moral judgment that um, uh, doing something bad, you know, and with evil intent is worse, morally speaking, than not doing something good. And that the criminal law should be reserved for the most heinous acts. And the second is that if we use the criminal law not just to punish and deter bad behavior, but to actively mandate that people do good behavior, that's a serious abridgment of personal freedom. And you know, that raises concerns you know, about, about government coercion, um, fundamentally, because the, the criminal law is the government's most fearsome power as against its own people, right? It's the only power the government has that lets it lawfully take away our freedoms, and even at times, um, our lives. So ultimately, the, the, what, what this comes down to is a determination of what we want the proper scope of our criminal law to be? Do we want it to be confined, um, used sparingly against the worst of the worst, or do we want to use it as a tool of social change? Okay, let me just a tiny bit play devil's advocate, because I think I'm with you sure. on this, but so this gentleman, Scott Peterson, I assume he was fired after this incident, right? He was. So he lost his job. He certainly has suffered, uh, I would imagine, when him, uh, him learning later what happened inside the school, that 17 students were killed, that, you know, his inaction on his own part, as well as uh, his, what he's telling the, the police to do when they arrived, all of that arguably contributed to the the number of deaths involved. So I'm going to guess, in addition to losing his right. job, he's had an extreme um, sense of guilt and remorse. I mean, I, I wouldn't even want to, I, I can't even imagine going through life with this. So there's some argument that he's pretty much suffered already enough. So is there is there really a reason to make him suffer more? I mean, I, that's an argument kind of, I guess, against this prosecution, but it doesn't seem like you're really deterring anything that he would otherwise do. You know what I'm saying? You, you're just going to lock it. And actually, are they seeking actual jail time in this case? Do you know? Yes. Yes. He would be looking at quite a lot of jail time if they uh, succeeded in prosecuting him on all of the counts. I don't know off the top of my head how much, but it would be years. 
Okay, but let me, and actually one other factor in this case that argues in favor of prosecuting him, he's charged with seven counts of child neglect. That's usually charged against parents, caretakers, foster parents, or sometimes preschool, I mean, teachers who have, so they're arguing in this case, he had a unique responsibility or duty as to these children, culpable enough that it constitutes child neglect for not running in the building. Is that right? Right. And that's, as you said, you know, this is the first time, as far as I know, that uh, a resource officer has been put in the position of a legal caretaker. And um, that sort of begs the question, you know, where's the line? And if we didn't know, you know, in advance that law enforcement officers are technically caretakers, then the law isn't for performing a deterrent function. Because if you're prosecuting, if you're making these decisions after the crime has occurred, nobody before the crime has occurred could know what right. they're doing is criminal. You don't have sufficient notice of what the law requires. I mean, that, that's a basic exactly. thing in criminal law. The people are supposed to have sufficient notice of what the law requires. I tell you, though, the other kind of human factor in it is all these parents who lost children, they have to be thinking nothing's going to happen to this guy. He just gets fired. In fact, I think if they tried to have, uh, sue him, uh, tried to bring civil liability, he's going to turn to the school district to say, you know, I don't have any money. I was their employee, so you're ultimately going to be suing the school district, which doesn't really have culpability here and would end up, and, and still at the end of the day, you're not really getting justice as against this guy. So I feel for the parents because right. they w want something to happen and it seems like nothing did. Right. I mean, ultimately, I, you know, I, I feel for the parents too. The, the, that, um, that desire for revenge is a powerful and un totally relatable and understandable emotion. The problem really is, you know, where where should the where should that brunt of that anger be directed? And of course, it's at the shooter. Um, but um, you know, that desire to ascribe blame wherever it can be put is a powerful one. The the question then becomes, though, is you know, do we really do we want to use that the big guns? You know, the government's big guns of the ability yeah. to lock people up. Is is this is this guy the right guy? to be the target of those big guns. And when the only thing that's really motivating that is a desire for revenge. Revenge, right, revenge. Right, that, that's, that's probably not a, a good enough interest to sort of um, consider sacrificing those constitutional principles that underpin this idea of restraint in using the criminal law. Yep. You know, another just kind of pragmatic consideration that I want to just go to, there are a lot of legal experts weighing in saying this isn't going to fly, even if you can get a jury to convict him, which I think they will. But as it goes up on appeal, all the issues we're raising are going to be raised by the appellate courts. But one last kind exactly of pra right. yeah, one last pragmatic kind of slippery slope, slope argument. So suppose this guy, Scott Peterson, had on that day got inside the building, you know, maybe made his way toward the gunfire, heard the gunfire, hid then, waited till it stopped. I mean, at what point, once you're gonna say it, you're criminally liable for negligently failing to defend the children, at what point could that liability attach? If you didn't aggressively right. charge him, you know, guns blazing, charge him, risk your own life, is, it's a very hard standard that the, uh, the prosecutor would be looking at there to define when do they do enough to avoid being charged with negligence. Right, exactly right, and that, that's the other problem with uh, knowing what the law is in advance, right? That line is impossible to draw unless it's been really clearly set out in some statute, which of course here it hasn't. This is essentially criminal negligence, which 
um, is just a duty of care. So again, if you're in that position, it's impossible to know where that line is. Absolutely. Giancarlo, I am going to follow this case because I think this is darn interesting. Honestly, it kind of struck me as a good question for a law professor to raise. I mean, it's a great discussion question because you sympathize with the parents. You feel horrible about what happens. You do feel pretty critical of a guy who just decided he wasn't going to risk his life. But but changing the standard or bringing this to bear, bringing bringing the, the to bear against this guy, the power of the government to to lock you up for the rest of your life on something that wasn't clearly even a crime to start with. Very, very dangerous, but very interesting case for America. So, well, Giancarlo, thank you so much for joining me. You wrote one piece Absolutely, about this. Absolutely, Debbie. Yeah, you wrote one piece about this. I will direct people to actually on our website, americancanwetalk.org, on the homepage, under shows, go down, list of links. The article is called, it was an opinion piece at Fox News, Giancarlo Conaparo, Criminalizing Cowardice. That was a great title, by the way. Criminalizing cowardice isn't the American tradition. So you got to read that article, folks, and you can tell us what you think. So thank you so much, Giancarlo. Thank you for having me, Debbie. Great to talk with you. I'm telling you, folks, we will follow this case. I think there'll be a lot of interesting follow-up. What a jury does doesn't seem very questionable to me. I think they're going to find plenty of reason to convict. But what the courts do with this, criminalizing cowardice, great capturing of the the, uh, legal concern. An interesting case. And obviously, tragic case for those parents. Those parents, I think a lot of them are probably pushing, can't somebody do something to hold this guy accountable when really, as Giancarlo just said, it's the shooter. He's, he's the one. The shooter is the one responsible. Okay, folks, we're going to turn uh, today. I, w- I mentioned I want to talk about uh, Biden bonds with racists. And I know that among my listeners, I have people who... Uh, like Joe Biden, who support Joe Biden and may support him for the presidency. I want to talk about what happened. This is kind of the last 48 hours, an ongoing conversation. But what happened uh, to what Joe Biden said in an interview? Uh, no, actually, it was in a, a fundraiser, what he said in a fundraiser. And, um, and then how that is being criticized by his fellow uh, Democratic candidates running for president of the United States. But first, I'm going to go, and Matt, I sent you, these are out of order, I'm sorry, but I sent you a link that was when Joe Biden made his announcement. I want to remind you all what he said about President Trump, what he said as the reason he was running for president. Do you have that, Matt? Okay, here we go. It was there on August of 2017 we saw Klansmen and white supremacists and neo-Nazis come out in the open. Their crazed faces, illuminated by torches, veins bulging, and burying the fangs of racism, chanting the same anti-Semitic bile heard across Europe in the 30s. And they were met by a courageous group of Americans, and a violent clash ensued and a brave young woman lost her life. And that's when we heard the words of the President of the United States that stunned the world and shocked the conscience of this nation. He said there were, quote, some very fine people on both sides. Very fine people on both sides. Okay, the reason I had to play that with you to kick off this discussion, Joe Biden announced his campaign he made his campaign announcement on a flat-out, bold-faced lie. A lie. 
President Trump, as we played the clips, we read his speeches to you, we've played the clips. President Trump referred to fine people on both sides of the question of whether or not America should be taking down Civil War era statues, markers, other things which honor Civil War people in our history who were fought on the Southern side. Basically, it's Robert E. Lee statues, but other statues as well. There was a, uh, there's a, a movement in America where some people just want to take down everything that represents anything about this, uh, the Southern side in the Civil War. And so the entire incident that Biden was referring to was a battle that broke out over the whether or not to remove a particular Robert E. Lee statue. And there were some said, yes, we should remove it. Others said, no. No, we should not. Trump never said that racists or anyone involved in violence or that Klansmen or that white supremacist, he never said anyone like that constituted a fine person. Trump's quote, fine people on both sides, was about Americans of all colors on both sides disagreeing about how we move forward as a country, whether or not we keep those statues up. That's what Trump said. But Biden opened his presidential campaign on a flat out lie. He, and, and that should tell you about all you need to know about his character, but moving forward. So Biden had a, um, he has a long history in America involving race. And I just want to tell you what he did. So he was at an event. He was speaking at a uh, fundraiser, a high-dollar fundraiser. And his point he was making at this fundraiser was he, Biden, was saying that over his many years in Washington, he has proven that he can work with anyone. He can work with anyone. He was touting his ability to work with people he doesn't agree with. So he mentioned James Eastland of Mississippi, a senator uh, from Mississippi from uh, 1941 to 1978 he was he touted himself this James Eastland touted himself as the voice of the white south he was a rabid segregationist he hated black people he, he said horrible evil things I decided not to put them on the screen but horrible evil things his entire service in the Senate from Mississippi as a Democrat Biden mentioned in this fundraiser, well, yeah, you know, I, I even work with James Eastland, you know, Mississippi guy. And he also mentioned another one, Herman Talmadge of Georgia. He served in the U.S. Senate um, from the state of Georgia from 1957 to 1981. He was also a Democrat. He was also a strident, ugly, vicious racist. These two were horrible representatives of the Democrat Party in the U.S. Senate. And Biden, in trying to say I can work with anybody, is talking about how well he worked with them and shumming up with them. And in this speech, he went on and on blathering about how comfortable he was and they worked together. And his point was, you know, we can disagree about things, but hey, you know, we disagree, but sometimes we still work together. And he actually went on to say, you'd get up and you'd argue. This is, this is Biden speaking. You'd get up and you'd argue like the devil with them. Then you'd go down and have lunch or dinner together. The political system worked. We were divided on issues, but the political system worked. He used the term in this, these remarks just a few days ago, talking about longing for the era of civility, that he loved when there was civility. And this was his example, that he worked with these ugly racists, and he's claiming, you know, got some good things out of that, but he worked with these ugly racists, and then he had lunch or dinner with them. So this did not go 
over well with the uh, several of the Democrat opponents, his Democrat opponents running for president. Uh, Cory Booker has uh, been very critical. Uh, so has Kamala Harris. Uh, I mean, many Democrats have come out saying, what is he talking about palling around with these segregationists, these and these violent, hateful, racist segregationists? And I'm going to tell you what the answer is. What Biden is really saying there, when he's saying, wasn't it great, we could be civil, he sat down and had lunch or dinner with these fine people. He's actually doing and bragging about in his speech what he accused, he falsely accused Trump of doing. Trump didn't call racist fine people. Biden is bragging about getting along with them and having lunch with them and having dinner with them. And he's now been pushed a little bit to apologize for uh, sounding so friendly and chatty toward these uh, segregationist races. We have a brief little clip on Biden. He will not apologize. Here he is saying he won't apologize. Corey should apologize. He knows better. There's not a racist bone in my body. I've been involved in civil rights my whole career. Period. 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 So who he's talking about there is Cory Booker, because Cory Booker, one of the presidential candidates, really came to hard on Biden, and that's what Biden's saying is not only is he not apologizing, Cory Booker should apologize for calling him out on what he said. But I just want to posit several other things. Then we're going to turn to the reparations hearings that are now ongoing uh, in the U.S. House. But I want to finish on this point about Biden. I want to remind you about what happened to Trent Lott. If you remember that name, um, Trent Lott, back in 2002, was just about to become the Senate Majority Leader, Republican Senator, um, and he was about to become the Majority Leader. And he went to a birthday party for segregationist Strom Thurmond. So it wasn't a political speech. It was a birthday party. I think Strom Thurmond might have been turning 100 or something. Yeah, 100. he was turning 100 years old. So, so you know, Trent Lott asked to make some birthday remarks to Strom Thurmond, who had a history as a segregationist. And in those remarks, uh, he, Lott, said, hey, things might have been better off if we supported Strom Thurmond years ago when he ran for governor or ran for president, whatever he ran for. The whole point was all he was doing was praising somebody at a birthday and saying, hey, things might have been better if we voted for you. No comment about race. No, And, and that that particular little clip from a birthday party nearly destroyed Trent Lott. The media, CNN, could not get enough of playing it over and over and commenting on it and asking everyone under the sun what they thought about it and what their second cousin thought about it. And they just went on and on and on. I do think that what Biden said here is so stupid that the media is going to have to pay some attention to it. But stop and think about how much attention the media paid to Trump's remark that there were fine people on both sides. And again, on both sides of whether or not you should take down statues of Civil War era people who fought in the South or not, how much effort the media makes to attach that statement to President Trump and then to relentlessly use the term racist, having made racist statements in the past. And every time someone says, what are you talking about? No, he didn't make racist statements. They keep it up. I'm just going to make a prediction here. The media is not going to do this to Biden. Unless, of course, unless, of course, the media comes around, decides they got to take Biden out, that they don't want him to get the nomination. Because right now he's leading the Democrat pack. And maybe the media will turn on him if they decide he's not the one to get the nomination. But they will never do to Biden over these 
just ridiculously uh, inane praising of these segregationists. In fact, one little thing I just discovered in doing all this research for the show today, Biden actually agreed with the Mississippi Senator Eastland, who is stridently fighting against for busing as a resolution for segregated schools. You remember we had the whole era in American history where we had busing enforced and we had the um, we, we had Congress essentially requiring busing to integrate schools. Eastland didn't want to do that. He's this Mississippi senator, he's saying no way, and he because he because he hates he at the time and still today I assume hated black people, did not want to have black children in the same schools as white children, and Biden helped him fight busing. Biden signed sided with Eastland to fight busing. Now Biden will say, Yeah, I did that because I really thought that in in Biden's defense of it was why well, I really thought the black community would be far better off uh, and, and be able to um, you know, uh, preserve their strong culture and unity and connection uh, if we didn't uh, divide, if we didn't break up the schools and send some students and, and integrate the schools. He claimed his, opposi his opposition to busing. Biden said his opposition to busing was because he just really wanted to help the black culture stay together and he thought busing would divide them. I don't know. I don't think that many people would have given a Republican very much of a break if they had that attitude that Biden did. But I raise this all today to say Biden has really stepped in it with these statements and he is taking this strident, I'm not apologizing, what are you talking about? Who, me? I'm not apologizing. Cory should apologize. I don't think Cory Booker's going to apologize. I don't even think, I mean, and Biden might have just, you know, he might have learned the lesson from the Obama era. There's just never anything good to come out of apologizing. All they'll do is they'll take your apology as a further news story to say, and he admitted it. Look at this, he apologized, he admitted it. So Biden just saying no way. But I just, my main point in raising this to you is the utter hypocrisy of Biden announcing his campaign based entirely on a lie, claiming that Trump said they're fine people uh, who are racist, and yet he is essentially saying, praising these two clear racists, segregationist racists, as uh, longingly speaking of the time he worked with them because it was an era of civility, and even though they'd argue, he'd sit down and have lunch and dinner with them, palling around with racists was okay when it was Joe Biden doing it. But it's not okay, I hope, in the minds and hearts of Americans. And kind of on a related story, you probably saw that they started the, the uh, hearing in uh, the U.S. House over the issue of reparations. The Democrats are going to push this issue of reparations. And essentially what they are arguing is that the legacy of slavery in America means that somehow, this is a, a commission they want to have look at this, but they somehow there should be a massive transfer of wealth uh, from uh, and it's unclear who has to pay into this and, and who are the recipients. There's a lot of battle about, you know, what do you do? Uh, I mean, all sorts of, I, I won't even go through all the hypotheticals, but it's an absurd a, a concoction to start with. Slavery ended in America uh, in 1865. You know, we've had, we've had, uh, you had the civil rights movement. We had, you know, we've been 50 years past that. And we still have people who are basically arguing in Washington that there must be reparations paid by white Americans to black Americans or some subset of white Americans or black Americans. And uh, so this is now a hearing and I, there was the most tremendous testimony and that's what I want to turn to next. 
tremendous testimony in Congress in this reparations hearing at the U.S. House. So Burgess Owens, a, a retired NFL safety, a Super Bowl champion, um, testified. And I want to just ask Matt, my wonderful producer, to play the comments that Burgess Owens made. They should be required listening for every student in America. But here you go. Here comes Burgess Owens. Thank you so much for, for this opportunity. Um, I'm going to take a different tack from beginning. Uh, we are at this point, this is not about black and white, uh, rich or poor, blue collar, white collar. We're fighting for the heart and soul of our nation. We have a very, very special country that started with the Judeo-Christian values that allowed every single generation to become better than the last. And that has not ended, that has not stopped. Until now, we're telling our kids a little bit something different, that they don't have the opportunities that we had. I'm going to talk about some ideologies, and when I talk about them, I'm not talking about people. People change. I used to be a Democrat until I did my history and found out the, 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 the misery that that party brought to my race. So when I talk about these ideologies, ideologies don't change. People do. We are fighting for the heart and soul of our nation against socialism, Marxism, and the evil that it has brought to us in the stealing of our history. Karl Marx said it best. The uh, author, the father of socialism, an atheist, anti-Semite, and a blatant racist. Yet we teach his philosophy in our school systems today. He said it. The first battleground is rewriting of, of our history. You steal our history. You steal our pride in our past, our appreciation for our present, and our vision for our future. And every single urban city in our country is now experiencing that loss. The 40s, 50s, and 60s. It was a black, country, a black community that led our country in the growth of the middle class, led our country in terms of the men committed to marriage, over 70%, now it's 30%. Led our country in terms of the commitment to business ownership, 40%, now it's 3.8%. Men matriculated from college. We now have more, a higher percentage of men in, in, in incarcerated in college. It is, by the way, my degree was biology. And that... I learned a long time ago that slavery is not a gene in the DNA helix. It's our actions, it's our attitude, it's our belief. I do not believe in reparation, because what reparation does, it points to a certain race, a certain color, and it, and it points them as evil, and points the other race, my race, as one that is not only becomes racist, but, the, the, but also beggars. I do believe in restitution. Let's point to the party that was, that was part of slavery, KKK, Jim Crow, that has killed over 40% of our black babies, 20 million of them. State of California, 70, 75% of our black boys cannot pass standard reading and writing tests, a democratic state. How about a democratic party pay for all the misery brought to my race? And uh, those, after, after we learn our history, decide to uh, stay there, they, they should pay also, they're complicit. And every white American, Republican or Democrat that feels guilty because of your white skin, you should need to pony up also. That way we can get past this reparation and recognize that this country has given us greatness. Look we have become successful in this country like no other because of this great opportunity to live the American dream. Let's not steal that from our kids by telling them they can't do it. Thank you. God bless that man. 
that guy just sat in the U.S. Congress, Democrat-controlled, who are launching the reparations mission and just, I mean, this is like reading them the riot act. This was stellar, beautiful, brilliant, and I think that it, it really, it, it bears, it, we all should be inspired to think about many of the points he was making. The Democrat Party is trying to tell black Americans, your place in America is as a victim, as a beggar. That's what reparations are telling black Americans. We don't believe in you. We don't believe in your capacity to succeed, to thrive, to dream, to, to, to achieve. That your only path forward is to be a beggar, to, to agree to be a victim, and to force other people who've never done anything to you to hand you money. And I, I had to cut out his, his, actually I encourage you to listen to his entire uh, remarks. I had to cut it out so I had enough time to talk about it on the show, but they were just stellar remarks. He talked about his own family, his, his dad being strong, and the teaching that came in his family. He talked about, and the, the statistics he had, all the statistics about his left-wing policies embraced by the Democrat Party, and they are Marxist policies. The left-wing policies have destroyed the black family, they destroyed the entrepreneurial spirit in the black community. The numbers he had about once, and he's obviously talking about before the Great Society came along, before the uh, Democrat Party worked so hard to create dependency in Washington, before while the Democrat Party worked so hard to tell people because of the color of your skin, you're a victim and you can't move forward and you're trapped, and the only solution is to turn and vote for us and we're going to give you something, give you stuff for free. His idea that you're not determined, he had a great line there I couldn't get to, but you're not determined by your skin color. Or as he put it, slavery is not in your genes. This was a, these were brilliant remarks. And they, I hope they really reach the ears and, and hearts and minds of more Americans to recognize what is really behind this Democrat drive for reparations. Because what's behind the Democrat drive for reparations is not to help. It is not to uplift. It is to, it is to sear the message into the minds of Americans that if you, based on the color of your skin, you have no chance of making it. Society is filled with races who won't accept you, who won't allow you to achieve, and your only place in our society is to be a victim, to be a beggar, to use the word that uh, Burgess Owens used. I mean, his, his, he. I, I'm just thrilled with his statement, thrilled he had the bravery to make it, and thrilled to have really the kind of a pulling back of the curtain behind the motive of the Democrat Party. The Democrat Party that was the party supporting slavery in the South, was the party supporting Jim Crow, was the party supporting segregation in the South, was the party that uh, we, we talked about a little bit earlier today with President, um, Vice President Joe Biden, talked about the uh, Democrat senators who were just monumentally evil segregationists. That's a Democrat party. His point is, if anyone has destroyed the black community in this country, it's the Democrat party. And you know, this it hasn't changed since the time the Great Society came along. It was just the next phase of left-wing enslavement of black America. The next phase, okay, slavery's over, and then we have and we have segregation's over, but now we got great society. Another phase of the racist mindset of the Democrat left in this country that says you're going to be dependent, you're going to be we're in, in, under the guise of helping you and supporting you, we're gonna put programs in place that destroy the family, destroy the family unit, 
And as we talk about many times in the show, children grew up without a father have are just so far behind kids growing up with two parents in the home. He talked about destruction of the entrepreneurial spirit in the black community, but again, from the social programs that the left created. So his ending point, if you really want to do what's right, forget about reparations. He wants restitution from the Democrat Party to black America for all of the damage they have caused to black America. It was a brilliant brilliant speech in Congress. I am thrilled to share it with you. I urge you to uh, to share this, uh, share this show with your friends, share that. You can go and find the YouTube link on my website, americacanwetalk.org. Share it with people. This is, a, this is a black American speaking up, speaking truth to the Democrat Party in Washington. Well, I'm going to close today uh, just a very quick uh, quick dive into Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's latest crazy. And I, I mean crazy. So she made a statement about the uh, camps where along the border in America, we have so many people pouring over the southern border and they are we, we are detaining some of them. Some of them who are coming here claiming us to ask for asylum and we are detaining them with their children or their children because as you likely know uh, they had recent testing at the border they had like the quick dna testing you know the finger prick check the blood they had 30 percent at least it was 33 percent of the people coming across the border with a child claiming as their child was a hoax no relation these are kids being trafficked and so we had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez calling our camps, saying these are the same as concentration camps. I'll skip playing her, you her video, but that's what she said. These are concentration camps. So what ought to be happening in the Democrat Party is one of the adults in the room, Nancy Pelosi, somebody needs to take this young girl aside, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and point out a few differences between the concentration camps, which she's referring to the Holocaust and all of that, and the, and the rounding up of Jews throughout Germany and throughout Europe during World War II. She's comparing that to America having camps on the border to ha safely house people who've crossed our border. Let me help her. Number one, the people in the camps here broke the law to enter America. They fought to get into the camp. They broke the law to get into the camp. We don't have people in camps like the Germans were doing, rounding up people based on being Jewish or other some other uh, category they found offensive and sticking them into camps. These are people who broke our laws coming into our country. And so we put them in a place so we can process whether or not they have a right to asylum here, whether or not they can stay here or they have to be sent home. So there is zero connection between real concentration camps and what we are doing. Number two, her party will not support border security on any level. She's of the party that says, won't fund the border wall, won't increase funding so we have adequate border patrol troops, people at the border, won't increase funding to build sufficient facilities. That was Trump's most recent thing. Can we just get enough money to build sufficient facilities to hold these people until we process their asylum claims? Doesn't seem concerned that at least a third of these people with kids aren't even related to the kids. These are people trafficking children to get them into God knows what hell they would then experience in America unconcerned about that, making a political point that somehow she can compare Trump to and, and the, the containment of people who enter our country illegally to the Nazis and the, and the concentration camps. 
some adult in the room on the Democrat side needs to get a hold of her, educate her, and frankly, the Democrat Party ought to be embarrassed to have her even in their ranks. More on this probably next week. But let me close out today's show by going through, as I love to do at the end of every show, why the stories I talk about, why they matter to you. Number one, the Supreme Court, cross okay in the public land. Suing to remove crosses from public land is often rooted in strident opposition to the place of Christian thought in America's founding. This is why the anti-Christian, anti-religious, freedom from religion people make lawsuits like this. They want to drive out of public comprehension or memory that Christian thought is, has a rooting in America. Number two, there is no right to freedom from religion in the Constitution, and there's nothing in the Constitution that requires absolute separation of church and state. SCOTUS, Supreme Court's decision, leaves in place respect for America's Judeo-Christian history on criminalizing cowardice. We had our friend from Heritage on with us. Despite this desperately heartbreaking situation, Parkland School Resource Officer Scott Peterson who appears to be guilty of having frozen in fear and having failed to stop to failed to act to stop the gunman his crime is not acting apparently out of fear huge legal consequences for America's criminal justice system of fear or not acting can be the basis for criminal prosecution. Slippery slope on prosecuting cowardice. Biden's fine people. He launched his campaign on a lie about President Trump. He's now probably defending his actions, palling around with and being friendly with and having lunch and dinner with and respectful toward colleagues who were avowed racists. The hypocrisy meter is blowing up on this man. I'm going to ask you, do you think the media will give Biden the Trump treatment? I don't think so. On the reparations hearing, Burgess Owens demonstrated rare moral courage and clarity, strong personal credibility, denouncing the reparations idea. Burgess Owens also laid the economic, employment, and educational plight of black Americans squarely at the Democrats' feet where it belongs. He has no relation to Candace Owens. However, her Blexit movement in 2020 is growing. It could just be the greatest thing for the future of America and last AOC and her Holocaust comments. When you start to compare everyone to Hitler, no one is Hitler. When everything is a concentration camp, nothing is. Sovereign nations must control their borders. Detention of lawbreakers is as old as humanity and time itself, essential to law and order. American detention centers for illegal immigrants are humane and decent. They are not, my friends, concentration camps. And that's my show for today, America Can We Talk. I invite you to tune in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. Please like this Facebook page, share it, comment on it. Please, if you're watching on YouTube, love to have you doing that. Love you to subscribe YouTube. Love to I try to respond. I get. I try to respond if I can. And also, we're now doing this show on uh, Twitter. We're on Periscope. So if you're watching on Periscope, love your comments there. Please follow me on Twitter at Debbie Can We Talk. And if you want to email me to talk about any of these issues, I'm way behind responding. But email is AmericaCanWeTalk at gmail.com. And I do this show to urge you to do what I try to do every day, which is to speak up for America, this extraordinary, precious experiment in human liberty. Speak up for America because America matters. Talk to you Monday. Can you hear us now? America, can we talk truth about America? Can you hear